everybody and welcome to another episode of the Conversation of Our Generation. My name's Nick Jamel and I'm the creator of the Conversation of Our Generation and the host of the podcast here. And today, in honor of Martin Luther King, we're going to be talking a little bit about healing the, the divide in our country that we have. Um, obviously, it's not the same kind of divide that he faced, but I want to talk about it and take, uh, take some of the stuff that he did and speak to that and then say what we can do maybe look at what we can do maybe to fix the problems that we have at our at, you know at our fingertips now with the divisiveness that is just so prevalent and so obvious and kind of put it into a little bit of context so i think it's gonna be a good show i think you're gonna like it but before i get too far i wanted to remind you that you can find me on conversationofourgeneration.com is where you can go to get all the blog posts all the stuff about what I'm doing and what I'm working on. And then you can also find me on facebook.com slash conversation of our generation or Twitter at con of our gen. And feel free to, you know, be commenting, sharing, but definitely be giving me feedback there. I love hearing what people have to say about it and looking at it. So if you do enjoy the episode, take issue with something, have a question, feel free to hit me up there or on the, you know, comment section of the blog, whatever you want to, wherever you like. Um, I'd be happy to answer your comments and, you know, let you know what I think further or answer questions or have a good, lively discussion about these topics. And so before I get too far ahead of myself, I'm going to go ahead and let you hear from We Do Better. We Do Better is an organization focused on finding and highlighting the organizations that are creating better solutions in government uh, systems. And basically what they're trying to do is get the people who are out there working at nonprofits and organizations that are helping people and you know really truly making the better difference in people's lives the funding and the notoriety that they need to continue to do their work and so if you'd like to get involved with that if you'd like to help you can go to wedobetter.org and find out more or submit uh, contact there and they can get you you know look at who's in your area and help you get started in trying to help people in your area do better Again, that's wedobetter.org. Go there and find out a lot of great stuff. You can find them on Facebook as well. If you look for the We Do Better page, there's a lot of great information there too. So go and check them out. They're a great organization. They're doing great things. So like I said, we're going to be talking about Martin Luther King today. And I felt it was only appropriate uh, to use one of his quotes to get us started. Because I think this is a great one to remind us about really what makes us American. And it's... We may have, sorry, we may have all come on different ships, but we're in the same boat now. And, you know, I think this kind of has a double meaning, you know. First of all, I think, obviously, everyone did come here different ways and different, you know, especially today. People are coming here from, you know, across Mexico, from, you know, Europe and Asia and Africa, all over the world. People are coming here different ways planes, trains, and automobiles to get here to America to live the American dream, but especially in his time, you know, with the fact that he's confronting racial bigotry, he's confronting problems with, you know, the Jim Crow South and everything like that, it obviously has the connotation that, somewhat, that, you know, for people who are unequal, it was partially because of what ship they came on, if you came here on a ship for free people or as a slave, and so there's that context too. But I think that one of the things that he will, was trying to do, obviously, is 
find a way to make the people who came on the slave ship equal to the people who came on a ship from England with, you know, freed people. And it struck me because it just works at two different levels there. And I think it's great because right now we have so much division among people who came here from, you know, the same boats, really, that the fact that you could get people to start to accept people who, you know, 80, no, not even, not 80, about 100 years before this were slaves, you know, the fact that you can get that far that now you're constitutionally protecting their rights, that you're, you know, you're really changing hearts and minds with what you're doing, because I think that the biggest fallout of what he did was he made, you know, the civil rights movement something that no one disdains, and I think that that's important, that it wasn't a violent thing, it wasn't something that you could look to him now and say that any of his tactics were, um, you know, unethical, really. I mean, you know, he wasn't a perfect man, he was a flawed man, but I think that just about everything he did, or not just about, I think everything that I can think of that he did in the civil rights movement was perfectly above board, that it was really focusing on you know, a peaceful demonstration of this is why we deserve to share in the American dream as black people, you know, and that's what they were saying. And, you know, growing up as a white kid, I never thought, like, I always looked at him as a hero. You know, I looked at him and thought, what an incredible person that, you know, now, if you could see my school where I went to school, that I, you know, was sitting at tables next to black girls and black boys and white kids and Hispanic kids and you know we really really didn't look at that that much I mean like you know you kind of knew I guess eventually that everyone was of a different race and stuff like that but you didn't really treat people differently because of it you didn't think anything less or more of anything of anyone because of that you know growing up it just was just like yeah it's there but it doesn't matter and I thought that that was just really cool to hear, like, that's what his dream was, and that's what you, what I feel like growing up that I saw, and so if we can make people who came on slave ships and who came on, you know, free ships, you know, to recognize that they're in the same boat here in this country, I think that we can get people who come from different political ships, different ideological, religious, uh, you know, national, nationality, you know, ships to come together and think of this country as the opportunity for everyone to make their way, for everyone to take it upon themselves to be an American, to, you know, embody and to take advantage of these American values that allow people to be free, that allow people to do really anything that their heart desires so long as it doesn't require anything of anyone else. I mean, that's really what it is. Is as long as you're not hurting anybody, you can make whatever life you want. As long as you're not requiring other people, you know, to bend to your will by force, right? You can totally do it if you want to pay them or whatever, but you can't bend other people to your will by force to make your dream come true. But anything short of that, I mean, you really can do most anything. And that's a beautiful thing for people to realize. And I think that if we can get everyone to realize what this boat is that we're in right now, it'll be 
a really, really great way to get people to come together. Because that's what Martin Luther King did, is he, he praised America. He, sh he just said, we just want to share in this as black people. We just want to be a part of this American dream, because and not be treated differently, but to be judged by you know who we are as a person, not by the color of our skin. And you know, I think that that's a very, very fair thing to ask. Obviously, right? That he's not asking for reparations. He wasn't asking for all the you know. He was just asking to be treated the same. That's all. And because of Dr. Martin Luther King, I'd like to kind of talk about. What it, what it, the racial divides are now that I see in our country, and I and what it, or what that looks like at least, what the racial lines that he was trying to tear down, how that looks now, and so it seems to me like most of these issues are truly in our past. I think that there's definitely very few people who truly, truly judge other people by their skin color, and I think that. You know, there's definitely still white supremacists in America. I'm sure there's a few. I mean, like, but I do think that the their influence and their numbers are way overblown. Um, but I do think that they're there. I think that there are people who truly believe that white people are superior to other races, that, you know, there are people like that, sure. I think that most other people in this country despise their ideology and think that their ideology is despicable and think that they're wrong about everything that they believe. So I think it kind of corrects for it because you're going to have crazy people no matter what. So the fact that there's no system imposed, that there's no widespread feeling about this says to me, and the fact that there's actually widespread condemnation of it says that I think that people are generally reformed on that. I think that what we're seeing now is that there are some divides um, somewhat between, and tensions a little bit, between the races, primarily because of divides that they just kind of tend to work along. So, like, I think there's really strong political divides in our country right now that I'll talk about later, and I think that part of that political divide falls along racial lines in a lot of ways, for the most part, and it's not because of the color of people's skin, it's because of just the way people overwhelmingly vote and for certain parties, you know, and it doesn't, you know, I can't make a judgment call on it, but, it, you know, there are huge disparities in the way that black people vote for Democrats versus Republicans. They swing very hard towards Democrats. You know, Hispanics are generally from what I've seen closer to the Democrat side but there are places where it's a little more even especially in like Florida like the Cu Cubans are generally pretty close to like even or lean conservative it seems like um, and so there's a little bit of tension there between those two political parties which kind of causes the racial tension that falls out from it I feel like because Especially because the po the Democrat Party has played on race a lot, that that happens. Um, so I think that a large part, and you know, and it also happens in religion too. I feel like there's a pretty widespread um, acceptance of different types of Christianity, but I do think that you know there has been in the past here tensions with you know people 
with Muslims, which generally then are going to be Arab people in America or, you know, Southeast Asian people. So, you know, they're generally not white people and they're generally, you know, in America, at least I feel like they're not as often black people. I mean, there are plenty of black people who are Muslims too, but, and white people probably who are Muslims too, but it's not the, you know, the focal point that people take, you know, it's, we picture, at least in America, you know, someone from Iraq, Iran, Pakistan, you know, Afghanistan, and all that, you know, or the Arabian Peninsula, that area, even though a lot of, most, you know, Muslims are actually in, like, Southeast Asia, oddly enough, because they're much more densely populated there, um, those countries are, but I think that we've made a lot of progress on racial lines. I think that the difference that we're seeing now that's also interesting is the idea that a white male or a white cisgender male, whatever, is unable to really have this conversation generally. And, you know, most people who would be like me would you know, have to renounce their white privilege and all of this before they start talking. And, and I think that that's really, I mean, just a way of, I don't know, this ideology that on the left of, like, it's almost a vengefulness against white people for having had success. And, you know, obviously, lots of white guys have done lots of bad things in the past. I mean, when you look at history... There have been a lot of white guys who have done a lot of bad things. I'm not denying it. I mean, there's been people of all different colors who have done a lot of bad things, too. But, you know, I think that if you look at the 20th century, you know, there's a lot of atrocities. You know, Hitler and Stalin were white. I mean, granted, Che Guevara was not white. He pretty much destroyed Central and South America for, until today still. is All of the government instability there is because of him. You know, there's a lot of bad dictators in Africa still today. You know, so evil doesn't have a skin color. <laughs> it's it's really not that way. And so when people try to pass all this evil and all this power on to, you know, the white people or white Anglo-Saxon males, then it really just, I don't know, it just kind of makes my skin crawl a little bit because I think that we're devolving back into something where now we're not judging people on the content of their character. We're not looking at the people's merits. We're automatically saying that any merit that you have, any you know, any character that you've built, any virtue that you have in your life is a privilege that you didn't have to try to get that, that you didn't have to work for it, that you didn't have to, you know, even if stuff was handed to you on a silver platter that you, you know, you still had to, you know, eat your dinner to, you know, to, you know, you still had to take the silver platter and do something with it, really. You had to accept that and to carry it forward and to, you know, so I, I because I'm not, you know, the most, most privileged and I'm definitely not the least privileged. I, you know, I was, grew up pretty middle class, but I definitely took every advantage of everything that I had in front of me and, you know, and I took that into account. If I, didn't grow up the way I was and have the assistance from my parents on things, then I would have, I would hope at least, worked around the system differently. You know, I would have had to be, take a little bit different approach to get to where I am today. Or maybe I wouldn't get to where I am right now today 
it would have happened a little bit later in life, you know, a couple years later in life to get to where I am. But I, I feel like I definitely would have gotten here. And I think that that's the mentality that we have to have is that, sure, I have the ability, I had a few extra advantages, but, you know, no one complains about the fact that LeBron is a superior athlete to, you know, at least in his prime, especially everyone in the NBA. He was the best athlete in the NBA by leaps and bounds. And yet, you know, no one complains about that in the NBA about why it's unequal for him. No, they realize that he just has the most talent, so you got to do your best against him. And so, and he also probably has one of the better basketball minds and, you know, all sorts of other things going for him. But no one complains about that, right? I mean, really, the thing they complain about is the privilege that he gets from flopping, (laughs) which is, I guess, you know, one you could talk about. But I think that those innate things that he has make him just an amazing basketball player, an amazing thing to watch, and an amazing gift to the rest of the world to see that and to be able to be amazed by what he can do. And why can't we just look at that for anyone else in our country today and anyone who's super gifted, who maybe is privileged, who whatever it is, and just say, wow, that person is an inspiration they are doing amazing things they're doing impressive things if they are of course if they're you know kind of just whisking it away then that's a totally different story if they're just you know if they're super privileged and run around doing drugs all day i don't think this really holds water there but the people who you know maybe were born into wealth who took it and did something amazing with it and give back and do all sorts of great things for their community why don't we praise that? Why, why do we have to tear that person down? I don't get that. And so that's really what bothers me. But I think that it really does stem from an ideology. And I think that there's two really big things that are in our way here. And it's a political ideology, but first and foremost, it's this elites versus the common people thing that's going on. And I think this is where a lot of the ideology stems from. Because, first of all, I don't think that there's an elite class as much in in America as people like to assume there is. I don't think the coasts are that much better of people. They're definitely, I don't think the coasts are much, much more, if any, more virtuous than people that I know around here in the middle of the country. However, that's kind of what we, how we talk about them is that they are the elites, this and that. But the fact is they look at the middle of the country as if we're bumpkins, you know, and People in the little country look at the coast as if they're stuck up and elitist and, you know, snobbing their nose at us. And I think a little bit of both of those things are true. I do think that, you know, there are some country bumpkins here in the middle of the country. There are, but they're great people generally and they're fun. And if you got to know people, I mean, I, I mean, I do know people like this and, you know, they're interesting. They're the people who... You can go to them and they can take you out on a farm and let you ride horses and shoot guns and all sorts of cool stuff like that. You know, if they're the people who, when they kill their cow, you can get a freezer full, you know, you can buy a really cheap freezer full of really good cow, you know, or beef, I guess if you want to call it that once it's dead. But, you know, there's just a different priority list for these people and they're practical. That's the thing. I think that divides the elitist versus the average person is 
the average person is practical. They're pragmatic. They see what works in their life, and that's what they go with, because the fact of the matter is, they don't have, you know, money to lose on theories and an ideological obsession. They have to provide for their family and provide for their kids' education so their kids can provide for their families in the future and all of these things. And there still is a almost like a mentality of the old farm where you have to get your kids ready to take over the farm and then the kids take over the farm and help the parents out and raise their own kids and the grandparents help the kids, you know, raise their kids and and so on and so forth. And there's a cycle like that. I mean, I've seen it in my own life that, you know, my grandma was a big part of me as a kid and helping raise me in a lot of ways, you know, whenever my parents needed to do this or that or, you know, I didn't have a babysitter most of the time. Every now and then neighborhood kid would, but, you know, it was almost always my grandma or my great aunt, you know, my aunt picking me up and, you know, watching me for a little bit and, you know, those kinds of things happen still. And then the reason why my grandma was able to do that was because she was able to not have to take care of her kids because she did the right things there and had to work her butt off to make set them up for a good life and set herself up that as she approached retirement that she would have a good life and a good ability to help out and flexibility in her life to do that. And she made sure that that happened, I think. I, I think, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, but it seemed all intentional to me. And so I think that then at the other side, the elites really do have time to dabble in theories and to think about, you know, all of these pie-in-the-sky ideas and how great would it be if this and that and blah, blah, blah. But they don't really have a... I feel like they're just out of touch with what happens in most of this country so much that, like, you know, I have a friend who lives in San Francisco and he tells me what people are like there and I just, like, I can't imagine people in Indianapolis being like that. Like, even though I think Indianapolis is moving further to the left, it is, you know, a big city and it's kind of becoming more and more of a big city, it's still just as unimaginable to me that someone would, like that, you know, we could adopt what San Francisco has as an ideology still. It really is unimaginable because it's crazy to me. It's so far out there. And so I think that there is definitely still a divide along this coastal elite versus the rest of the country and it's amazing to me because I think that this is a really big issue in our country and it's where a lot of the other things stem from, especially the political ideologies. I think that, you know, the reason why I think most of the middle of the country is very conservative is we realize that under the Reagan revolution, under, you know, and whenever markets are opened up, we have success. You know, like my grandparents remember you know, the 50s and the success that came and when you kind of got rid of some of the post-war stuff and some of the Depression era-ish, like, you know, programs and, you know, we kicked off. And then in the 60s, Kennedy slashed taxes and it really kicked off for a little while. And then, you know, after that, Lyndon B. Johnson tried to institute the Great Society and Jimmy Carter came along and eventually and all this stuff kind of really tore down all that stuff that they built from the war effort all the way till then because I mean really the war effort the reason why we were so successful after that war was because we were rebuilding the whole freaking world 
So, yeah, you're going to be pretty successful when the whole world's paying you to build it back up. Um, and so, it's a little bit of an anomaly, but what happened in the 50s and 60s was pretty good, pretty steady, you know, growth because we were kind of doing the right things and freeing up our market. And they saw that. And in the 80s, we did it again. And really, throughout the 90s and 2000s, we continued to free up our market for the most part. And then around the, you know, in the Bush era, in the 2000s, we <clears throat> did a little bit to, you know, obfuscate that and to start to, comp, you know, allow crony capitalism to really take over a little bit. And I think that gave a bad taste in a lot of kids in my age and a little bit older. This mouse about, you know, capitalism. And I think they're a little more wary of it because they don't realize that what we have really isn't the true capitalism that we're looking for. And that every time we move towards capitalism, we're freer. And so I do think that there's a pragmatism, though, among people in the middle of the country to say, like, look, I know these things work. I know that the conservative things work, that when people go to jail for doing crimes and when, you know, that stuff works. And, you know, they, you can make tons of arguments, and as a libertarian I do, about things that could work better in some of these areas. Sure, I do. But the fact that, you know, generation after generation here in the middle of the country is able to build lives out of these systems that have, you know, that every time someone from the left really comes and tweaks it, it makes it harder to do it. I think they realize that, you know, and as much as the Republicans suck at, you know, taking it back over towards something that's really, truly more conservative, more liberty oriented, you know, they at least don't screw shit up half the time, you know, half the time they do mess stuff up, but most of the time, you know, but the other half the time they you just don't get anything done and that's better than doing stuff most of the time in government so we realize that those things work and we just kind of roll with it and you can see it even in just how people live their lives here that it's not a, i think that our lives are simpler here than they are on the coast i think that we do live slower more relaxed lives most of the time i mean here in indianapolis it's a bustling city there's a lot going on you know, it's different, but my family that lives 35, 40 minutes outside the city has a really slower lifestyle because it's really almost country out there, you know, and people in my family that, you know, live in Tennessee or wherever, I mean, it is a slower, more mundane lifestyle than you get in a lot of big cities, even here in the middle of the country. <clears throat> And I think the last thing that I really want to talk about is this political divide that I think stems in large part from these these divides that we've seen arise in ideology and religion and really between the coast and the middle of the country. Because you can see the way that we vote. The only blue places that you see on like Clinton's map is a few cities here and there. You know, it's the only ones that she was able to turn blue in the middle of the country were states where the city is like a big like, you know, Illinois, where that city is most of the population. You know, Ohio can sometimes go that way because the cities are a large part of the population, but they're not super liberal. They're kind of a, like Indianapolis, where it's a sprawling metropolis, and you kind of have a lot of suburbs, and if you can turn people in the suburbs either way, then you're fine. But Indianapolis isn't enough of a population center for Indiana, really. And 
I think the Republicans and Democrats are at each other's throats all the time, like usual. But it seems that the rhetoric is just really elevated right now. It, I, I don't know. Maybe I don't remember under Obama or under Bush as much. Maybe I don't because I wasn't very, you know, in tune. I mean, you know, Trump got elected in 2016. I was in college, you know. My, it was the first election that I was able to vote in. So or first presidential election, at least, I should say. Um, and so, it seems to me that this is just... Uh, these are disparities that have been drawn other places. So you have geographic disparities. You have people in California, like I've talked in the past, that have their beliefs, and people in Indiana, and a huge federal government that allows for big population centers to kind of dictate to smaller population areas you know, more sparsely populated areas, how they're going to live. And, you know, I don't take kindly to that. I don't like having, you know, to be told whether or not I can drink from a plastic straw from, you know, a few cities on the coast. I, I don't want that to be the way that I live my life. And I think that that's more and more the way that it's going, and it puts pressure on us to push back because we want to protect the way that we live here in Indiana and... You know, I really don't want to stop Californians from living the way they want to live. I think that most of the middle of the country is in agreement with that. And, or New Yorkers or whatever, you know, people from Connecticut and Massachusetts, Boston area, you know, those places that are, you kind of think of as really liberal areas. I don't think anyone in, you know, middle of nowhere, Kentucky or Alabama really cares how those people live. They just want to not be told how they should live. And that's, you know, I think a noble thing. I think that you have to realize that these people want to be mostly just left alone. And then there's another side that wants to dictate to the whole country how they should be and how they should live. And I think that there's disparities in religious, you know, affiliation going on. I think that there's a lot of a large amount of secularization and not like, you know, I'm kind of keeping my church and my, you know, political mind separate, which I think is fine and healthy. I think I try to do that, you know, and make non-political or non-religious arguments in favor of my politics, as well as moral and ethical ones that I do draw from my religious background, sure. But, you know, there's, you know, I feel like almost half the country doesn't have, I think, last I checked, have an affiliation. They're just a nun. They're not an atheist necessarily, but they just aren't affiliated. They may be nominally Catholic or Jewish, but they don't practice or whatever it is. And I think that that creates a divide between, you know, people. Because now there's a big shift in what your values are when you no longer have a religious people. And, you know, I think that there you can see that in places where I'm sure I would be shocked if this is not the case. That in places where religious affiliation has gone down that, you know, you haven't seen a rise in nihilism and, you know, ceding control and liberty to the government, and where you've seen religious people maintain their religious affiliation, that you're seeing less government control, more self-sustaining systems, and more, you know, people who are helping themselves. And, you know, I think that this is really due in large part from that, and then I think that there's other ideologies that stem from that, like you see the difference in 
free markets versus socialism happening. You see the difference in this Marxist ideology of power and, you know, intersectionality rubbing up against the, you know, individualism and saying that, you know, you can't judge people as an individual. You have to judge them as, you know, where they stand in this hierarchy of victimhood. And I think that that is really, really hurting us. Those things put together. And then when you top that off with the fact that all this stuff is really happening in a geographic divide, like there's, you know, like I said, Californians kind of imposing what they want on the middle of the country in a lot of ways through the federal government, this geographic divide makes the political party the other. Because even in states that are kind of purplish, everyone who's blue lives in the big city for the most part in those places. And everyone who is red lives, you know, maybe suburbs, but just everywhere else, small towns and this and that, you know, those places all go red predominantly. And so when you have that, you, you know, you create a disdain within your state, but you create a disdain for the states along the coast that go blue that are able to kind of dictate elections in a lot of ways. And people, I think, don't feel like that's right. And, you know, and to be able to impose through the federal government how these states are going to run, to say that in Indiana, we don't have the right to say what marriage is because that's a state law. I mean, I don't care what side of the issue you fall on. Constitutionally, the federal government has no right, especially through the Supreme Court, to decide what marriage is or how states are going to define marriage. That's just, <laughs> I mean, that's just basic constitutional governance for America. I mean, like, and I personally believe that, you know, politically speaking, you know, you should be able to do that. I think every person should be able to get tax benefits for living with someone else for a long period of time. You know, whatever. I don't care. But the problem is that you redefine for an entire state something that they didn't fully believe in or maybe, you know, they would have been okay with it, but not in the way that you did it. Not in, you know, through just an ex like a fiat of this oligarchy of the Supreme Court. I think that that's wrong for people to be having that imposed on them instead of being able to take part in that discussion. And I feel like that's what's happening is it's we're having the discussion ripped away from the middle of the country in a lot of ways. And one of the great ways I think we could start to repair this is by treating everybody like they're an individual and to just start being honest and allowing anyone to discuss these ideas, no matter what they look like, you know, no matter what they are, where they are in the intersexual hierarchy, no matter where they live, and just have their opinion voiced and to have a true conversation about these things so that you're really bringing in all the different perspectives. Because, you know, I, I definitely think that there is absolute truth, as I've talked about on this podcast before and on the blog, but I do think that as people who are imperfect and fallible, that it is impossible for any one of us to have a full grasp on the truth on our own. So for those of us who can, you know, talk about these pie-in-the-sky ideas and try to, you know, bring together the truths of the ancient world and the Bible and stuff like that and marry that with what's going on today, I think is good. 
the people who are able to bring together, you know, the experiences of a system that doesn't doesn't work for them, who are able to voice how it's failed them and their community, and you know, really give true feedback on how we can correct some of those problems. That's great. I think that there are places where it's flawed. You know, I do think that a huge overarching federal government really hurts sparsely populated areas. You know, I think it rips away some of the power that we have to control our own lives. I think it does. But I do think that you could also talk about problems that are happening in high crime areas and, you know, or in black neighborhoods, Hispanic neighborhoods, you know, whatever, that, and that, that's not to conflate those three things, by the way, but the people who I don't have, you know, as someone who doesn't live in a high crime neighborhood, I kind of do live in a predominantly black neighborhood now, but growing up, I didn't, and, um, you know, but to be able to speak to some of the things that you see in those areas that are shortcomings, you know, in big cities, like, not Indianapolis big, but, like, you know, San, or, like, New York big, where are problems there? Where are problems when you're out in the middle of nowhere in Kentucky or Alabama and you can't get, you know, the power company to bring power to your area if you want to move you know you want to put something out on your land you can't get power out there you know what what are these problems that people are having and how can we start solving these problems for people you know not necessarily on a government level but just people understanding other each other's you know priorities in life because if you don't have if i need to build a you know a house on my farmland that i just bought and i can't get the power there well that's a problem for me but you know someone halfway across the country doesn't know about that problem they live in the middle of a city they're focused on their own issues and i think that we can kind of allow for you know more geographic control less you know government you know federal government control for those things to happen and for people to be able to have those discussions within their community within their area and to solve the problems for actual people in actual places instead of having these big huge ideas that come from the federal government that are supposed to make America better or help Americans all over the place, well, you really can't. <laughs> because not only am I different from people in my area and my community in a lot of ways, I'm different from people who, you know, live in a few cities away in Fort Wayne, Indiana, Lafayette, Indiana, Evansville, you know, Gary, basically the whole northwest of Indiana considers themselves Chicago anyways and not part of Indiana. You know, so, like, you can't keep that together within the state very well, let alone within a country of 330, 340, whatever, million people. It's not something that's going to work. So, <clears throat> why don't we just focus in on allowing people to make their communities better, allowing people to make themselves better, and start there and see what happens. I, you know, I, I talk about this all the time, that, like, here's some of the positive things you can do in your life and how they ripple up to... The whole country if you know you had a, a sizable percentage of people doing this you'd notice differences in our country and i think that one of the things that we have to do to allow for division to you know start to heal is to allow people to have some autonomy to really not be at each other's throats and to take away from Take, just If you take the debates away from the national stage and allow them to happen locally, I think you have a lot more goodwill in these hard discussions that we have to have about abortion, about gay marriage, about, you know, whatever it is, you know, how contraception changes the ethics of sex, how, 
transgenderism is going to be held, you know, handled in our schools. How, you know, we're going to handle a Christian school that wants to stay Christian and not allow these things in. How we're going to, you know, how are we going to do all these things that are complicated issues right now? Well, you know, healthcare, those things. How are we going to solve those? I think you have to solve those at a more localized level and allow the communities and the different types of communities to figure it out for themselves because that's the best way. Because what works for San Francisco or New York or Chicago won't necessarily work for Indianapolis or San Antonio or Birmingham or, you know, small towns or people who, you know, don't even live in a town. They have a, you know, you know, they have a town, whole city's worth of acreage of land that they farm. You know, these people are just so different. They live such different lifestyles that just bringing that discussion back down to that smaller level is going to help, I think. And I think that that's the best way that we can fix these issues is to stop making this this polarized, big, pie-in-the-sky issue that we debate on Fox News and CNN, and instead, it's something that we debate in our town hall. It's something that we, you know, debate at our state legislature. You know, those are the things that now we have a little more goodwill because they're people like us. They're people in the same boat. They're people who will be a stakeholder in the in this decision, who will be directly affected. Because the fact of the matter is, when laws come into effect at the national level, they affect people differently. You know, like Indiana, Indiana I mean, has a federal, or not a federal, uh, a budget surplus year after year. But meanwhile, we're subsidizing and giving loans to states that are going bankrupt, you know, at the federal level. Well, you know who's fronting that bill? The states who aren't bankrupt. So, you know, I'm paying more taxes to fund these places that are, you know, spending money like crazy. And I don't think, you know, that that makes me not a very happy person. I'm not going to lie. But we need to find a way to start to heal these things. And I think that part of it, too, like I said, politically speaking, bringing things down to a more local level is going to help. But at an individual level, at a community level, it's to be secure in yourself and to have empathy for other people. To When someone's talking about their ideas, to not shut them down, to not dismiss them, to not get angry or loud. It's to hear them out, ask questions, clarify, and, you know, put forth your ideas and why you disagree. And don't say why you disagree with the straw man of what they're arguing. Disagree with the steel man and tell them why. And give them the most benefit of the doubt that you can on what their argument is. And, you know, allow them to correct you or tell you where you know, they disagree with you and have those real genuine conversations because I, I enjoy that. You know, I, I think that, you know, I'm able to do that with my friends and my family and my fiance and we have these kinds of discussions and I don't understand why we can't, you know, I, I do have trouble, I will say, with people on the opposite side of the aisle or people at work. I don't really have these discussions as often. Um, but I do think that we should be able to agree to disagree and to not have to have so much tension around these things because it's hurting our country. It's it's making your country harder and harder to live in. And I, and I just fear that, 
it's going to ultimately be the demise of this great American experiment. And so that's my hope is that we can at an individual level empathize with and talk to people and have that good conversation and at the political level that we localize it more so that it's easier to do that because if there are people who are in the same boat it's a lot easier to have that goodwill towards whatever they're saying that you know they probably do will just want the best they don't just want to you know take over my life or whatever they want the best for our community because we live in the same community and they just disagree about how we get there that's all you know that's an okay disagreement to have so with that I want to end on a much more positive note here and just say thank you guys for listening thank you for being a part of this because I think that this is where you can come to start this process of healing these divides by really talking to people and having the ability to listen the ability to exchange ideas and I know that for the most part here it's me <laughs> but I hope that I'm giving you the tactics that you need and the ammo that you need to stand strong. I don't want to say ammo. Ammo is probably not the best, but the the ability and the you know the knowledge that you need and the you know hopefully some wisdom in there too to be able to approach these conversations and keep yourself calm and to be able to have a productive conversation because that's my hope is that throughout the country we are spreading productive conversations through this. That's my goal. And I hope that you guys are out there doing that. I know that I'm out there doing it as much as I can, and I really enjoy it. So thank you guys for listening to the Conversation of Our Generation, for taking your time to listen to me jabber on. And remember, you can find me on Facebook.com slash Conversation of Our Generation, Twitter at Con of Our Gen, or ConversationofOurGeneration.com if you want to see the blog and everything that's going on there. You can go there. Thank you guys again for listening. And let's get the dialogue going. Have a great week.